steward. When you think of a steward, I know some of you might might have this idea in mind of perhaps the uh, person who takes your luggage when you go to that uh, cruise ship. You know, I used to watch The Love Boat long ago. And I always remember the steward. He had a nice white uniform, and he'd take care of your luggage. And how can I help you? You know, the concierge at the hotel. Uh, Maybe the steward's the guy that helps you on the train or whatever. But it goes beyond that. Um, stewards can be anyone who manages the property of another or, or the processes. It could be a nanny that takes care of your children. It could be a business manager. Um, it could be um, all kinds of different people, landlords, apartment managers. They're all stewards. But I'd like to speak to you today specifically of what it means to be a biblical steward And a biblical steward is someone who is the manager of God's property or resources. Now, if you go over here to the Churchill County Tax Assessor's Office and you go down the rolls and you look at who owns what, you're not going to see God's name listed among them. If you go and you check the corporation's stock and you look through all the stockholders, you're not going to see Jesus Christ listed there. So you're going to ask yourself, where do we go to find out what God owns and what are we expected to manage on his behalf? And guess what? There's an answer. It's right here in God's word. There's a common misconception um, among Christians that when God created the earth, he somehow transferred his ownership to the people and he just stepped back and watched it go. Well, those of you that have read the word much, you know that's not accurate. And so what I want to do is to build a foundation here. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis 1:27, God gave some specific instructions to Adam and Eve and, and what he expected of them. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, Behold, I have given you every good plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So here we see that in the beginning, God gave us some specific instructions of what we were to do. We were to reproduce. A man is supposed to subdue the earth, rule over the fish and animals, um, and eat the plants that God had provided. So it doesn't say anywhere there that man was going to take ownership of anything. He's going to manage on behalf of of God and do what he was told. A little bit further in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, God clarifies it a little bit further. And he said, The Lord God took the man and he put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So man was given some further instructions. He was to cultivate and keep the garden, and he was to refrain from eating the fruit from one specific tree. Now, any of you that have ever worked for a large business or corporation, you know that they have personnel manuals this thick. Now, these are pretty basic instructions that God gave Adam and Eve. There wasn't a lot of need for explanation. It's pretty straightforward. And yet, uh, what happened? They They didn't quite follow God's plan. And as a result of not obeying, God had to give Adam and Eve some new instructions to follow. 
Now keep in mind that this is not God's plan B. It was not a contingency plan. Uh, This isn't something that surprised God. God knew from the beginning that Adam and Eve would fail. He knew they would incur a penalty for their sin. And he knew that they would need God himself to provide a redeemer to set things right. In short, God knew that man would always need him and that God would always be the owner of his creation. Turning for a moment to Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, um, I want to share something. If God is the owner and we are the stewards, then we, mankind, are the stewards of the earth. We manage it on behalf of God. Literally everything belongs to him. But because of Adam and Eve messed up, we're no longer in charge of managing a wonderful paradise with light work to do. But instead, we have something that we need to do that is a bit more difficult. So back to Genesis 3:17 through 19, it says, To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So now we still get to grow our own food, and we need to make provisions, but it is hard work. That is our starting point for biblical stewardship. Now there's two extreme views, neither of which is biblical, I might add. And to help illustrate these two extreme views, I've asked for a couple of people to come up and share. So, Stephen and Megan Martin, come on up. All righty. Stephen, I'd like you to just have a seat here. Kick back, put your feet up. Megan, you can go over there on that side if you want. Don't let me keep you from what you need to be doing. Yeah. So, are you comfortable? Here, let me grab that for you. Maybe just put that right there, huh? There you go. Excellent. All right. Kick back. Are you doing good? All right. We'll see if we can get somebody to get you a massage here in a minute. So what what Stephen is illustrating is that uh, the view that God will take care of it. If only I wait upon him long enough. He, I really don't need to, you know, do anything. God's going to rain down from manna from heaven to feed us. Now, while Stephen is lounging around and enjoying himself there, I'm going to share a couple verses from God's Word that refute this point of view. You doing okay over there, by the way? Um, Can we speed this up? Yeah, go go ahead. I'll I'll be with you in just a second. Okay. All right. This first verse related to Stephen's point of view here is found in Proverbs 21, verses 25 through 26. And it says, The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands... What? Refuse to work. All day long he is craving while the righteous gives and does not hold back. Now there's another New Testament passage in Second Thessalonians, and it's from verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, and it speaks of idleness. And it says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. For you yourselves know you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. 
But with labor and hardship we kept working day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you because we do not have the right not because we do not have the right to do this but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example for even when we were with you we used to give you this order if anyone is not willing to work then he is not to eat either for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life doing no work at all and acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. I should I should mention, remember it says they're not willing to work, not capable of work. That's a different issue, okay? Somebody that's not capable versus unwilling. <clears throat> now so much for Stephen. Don't strain yourself as you're leaving, by the way. Now Megan, of course, she's she's a busy lady and she's got a lot on her mind. And it's kind of just the opposite. You know, she works very hard, and she keeps giving all of the time, 110%. Go. In fact, she never even slows down. Go ahead and go a little faster, Megan. Now, she has her day planner, and she's got her her PDA and her lists of things to do, and her energy is inexplicable. But there is a little problem with Megan being God's steward also. And that is that Megan is striving on her own without acknowledging her need for God's lordship over her life. She thinks she has it all together when in fact her priorities are all out of balance. So here's some passages from God's word that are directed towards what we might call the worrying or workaholic lifestyle. The first is found in Psalm 127:2. It is vain for you to rise early and to retire late and to eat the bread of painful labors for he gives to his beloved even in their sleep. That doesn't mean they're going to take from Megan and give to Stephen. (laughs) There's another passage in the New Testament related to Megan's problem, and it's found in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 34, and this is in the Lord's own words. Do not worry then, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble for it of its own. So many people that are workaholics, they do sometimes that out of fear. They can't quite get themselves to fully trust God, so they worry and they store up and they maybe buy a lot of extra insurance. Not that some insurance is a bad thing. But they generally do what they can do to meet their needs without asking God for them and trusting Him alone to meet them. And in the process of trying to keep up, they eventually burn themselves up. And at the end, they end up with all kinds of emotional and even sometimes physical problems. Thanks, Megan. You guys are welcome to go. Appreciate the example. All right, so let's take a, see if we can recap this. A biblical steward is someone who carries out the will of God, since God is the owner, with respect to God's possessions and resources. And since God owns everything, that includes our time, our money, our resources, and even, yes, our relationships, 
we must need to find out exactly what God's will is so that we can perform our duty to the best of our ability. God's will for a biblical stewardship is really pretty straightforward. And uh, yet, like God's directions to Adam and Eve were simpler enough, we can still mess it up. Let's start with our uh, first direction, and that is that we need to trust him. Those of you following the outline, we need to trust him. We've already explored that short passage in Matthew 6, verses 33, but seek first his kingdom. If God is the owner, he knows what's best. And then Psalm 1, 1 through 3, gives us a good starting point on what God's will would be. It says this, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and is in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does he prospers. And that leads to a second direction from God. That is that we are to obey him, to obey him. Now, if you're the manager of a large business, you would need to be very discerning. Even if you're the manager of your household, you need to be discerning. But I'll just take the business example so we can relate to that. You can't always take the easy path. Uh, Doing the will of the owner is easy when everything's going well. However, what about during the tough times? Sometimes it involves discipline. It's much, much easier to give a raise than to give a pay cut. It's much, much easier to hire someone than to fire someone. So we need to be discerning. We need to be discerning in how much to pay, how much, who to hire. It's much, much easier to spend than to save up, isn't it? We need to be discerning in our spending. And it's easier to give praise or correction than it, or praises than it is or correction or rebuke. But yet both need to be used wisely. One of the areas we need to obey God in is giving. That's also in your outline. Proverbs 11:24 through 28 give a couple of, of examples of discernment in giving. Again, both extremes, one being very generous, one being stingy. It says in verse 24, There is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him, but blessing will be on the head of him who sells it. He who diligently seeks good seeks favor, but he who seeks evil will come, evil will come to him. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Another passage in Luke 12, 16 through 21, gives a further illustration of God's attitude towards those who refuse to share. And it starts in verse 16. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. I'm emphasizing it. You get the point. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, drink, and be merry. 
But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So it is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's not that the man was saving, it's the motivation behind his saving, right? He was hoarding it. So if we keep it all to ourselves and we take an indulgent lifestyle apart from reliance on God, we will, we will have the Stephen Martin complex, okay? Now in an Old Testament passage I shared several years ago, tell, God tells his people to also test him with respect to giving. And this is probably about the only place I've ever found in God's word where God explicitly says it's okay to test him. It's found in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But he says, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. I'll just share a, a, a personal moment of testimony here. Um, when God and I, when uh, God convicted our hearts about tithing, uh, my wife and I had started coming to this church in about 1985, and at that point we weren't tithing. And we read verses like this, and we started to get convicted, and uh, we started to be faithful. We weren't tithing right away, but we started giving about five dollars a week. You know, just something consistent. And at that time, a tithe for us might have been 30 or $40 a week. And then through the years, God has shown us the truth of this verse. And he has blessed us beyond what I can even share today through his faithfulness and um, helping us to be faithful to him. There's another aspect uh, of tithing, which, by the way, for your outline's sake, is the sign of God's ownership. Uh, the second uh, area of giving is in the area of obedience, and that's helping the obvious needs around us, kind of like what Leroy shared in the Crisis Pregnancy Center about the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan would be a good example of this level of giving. We've already given to God as a sign of ownership. Now we're going to also help meet the needs of some others around us through obedience. In Exodus 16, verses 17 through 18, the context here is the manna that God was providing, okay? And the, the people were instructed to gather it. But they were only to gather it for that day, otherwise it was going to spoil. And it says here, The sons of Israel did so, and some gathered much, and some little. And when they measured it with an omer, he who had gathered much had no excess, and he who had gathered little had no lack. Every man gathered as much as he should eat obedience another passage from matthew 25 verses 34 through 40 
Here it says, Jesus gives this information. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Yay! For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent you did it for one of these brothers of mine, you did it for me or even the least of them. You did it for me. Again, obedience. Another level of giving would be from abundance. When God does bless you, unlike the man with the barn that wanted to build bigger barns, God wants you to use those surpluses to honor him. It doesn't mean you have to give it all away, but give with joy. Hebrews 13:16 says, "And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased." 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8, and I'll emphasize portions of this. Now I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudging or under compulsion. For God loves, what? Cheerful giver. And Brothers and sisters, I can testify that for the vast majority of you, this is where you're at. You are cheerful givers, and praise God for that. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Serve Him with joy. The last level of giving that I want to talk about for a moment is giving from sacrifice. And that is when we yield our wants in order to meet the needs of others. This is a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and it's verses 1 through 5. Paul is commending them, saying, Brothers, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed with the wealth of their liberality, For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging to the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Another example I didn't put in the outline, uh, I didn't write down the passage, but remember when Jesus was observing everybody giving to the temple treasury as they would go into the temple, and he commended the widow for giving more than all the rest, even though they had clunked it with lots of silver and gold in there, the widow had put in a small copper coin, and and why would he say that she gave more than all the rest? Because she literally gave all she had. I'd, I'd call that sacrificial giving and fully trusting in God. And well, as we obey in this area of giving, he shows us other areas of stewardship that also need to be met. And one of them has to do with living within our means, and that is being content, if you're filling out the outline. 
And the passage I chose from Luke is chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus uh, talked to some soldiers. It says they were soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. You know, a lot of us are pretty happy these days just to have a job, aren't we? And I know there are people within this body that are diligently looking for work. They're putting in dozens, if not hundreds, of applications. They're striving for interviews. And praise God that they're doing what they can. But we all need to rely on God. And here is an, here is an issue to be content. Philippians 4.11 also speaks of it. It says, Paul, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. And, of course, Paul, as we know, had been buffeted and battled, and he had to work along the way, and sometimes he was in tough straits. Then he also counsels Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 8 to say this, If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. Now, it doesn't mean that we should not try to better ourselves. But it means that this striving or this constant idea of ladder climbing or whatever that the world promotes is not for the Christian believer. Our motive needs to be to please God. And if we get a raise, praise Him. If we get a promotion, praise Him. But let it be because of your character, not because of your striving. Another thing that stewards need to do is encourage others by example. In the outline, it says example. We need to plan ahead. Um, those of you with families, maybe you have young children, or maybe you're in our age category where we have adult children. It, there's planning that needs to be done. Um, we can teach our young children the principles of giving and obedience even at a very young age. Um, I may have shared this example in prior years, but um, when, when our kids were little, we used to have a little star chart that we'd put on the wall. And they were expected to do certain things, like keep their room clean. We didn't give them stars for that. That's just an expectation. But maybe they did other things. Maybe they helped with laundry or vacuuming or whatever their level of uh, ability was. And when they would, we'd give them stars on this chart. And at the end of the week on Saturday, it was payday. And we'd count up all their stars and we'd give them the nickel, dime, quarter, or God forbid, a dollar, you know, whatever that might be uh, in today's inflation. <laughs> And, and that would be their payday. And then we, we would encourage our kids to divide what they had earned into three separate categories. And we had little jars for them, and one of them was for giving. They put that money in there, and they'd bring it to church the next day on Sunday. And another cat, or maybe they'd save it because they needed to give to someone who needed it. Another category was spending. They could take that and, and buy their gum or whatever they thought they need that was okay with mom and dad, and that was their spending money. And then the third category was savings. And so we would have them put that aside and save a little ahead for something that they wanted, but it you know, cost more. And by doing that, hopefully we, we help them to learn a good work ethic, and we help them to learn that it's important to give. So these are things that we can teach. And, of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9, I'm not going to read it because of time, uh, it talks about us needing to teach our children diligently. And not just in these physical examples, but from the Word. We need to be teaching them God's Word and helping them to memorize. And, of course, teaching our adult children is just as important. We need to be planning for the future. Um, over the Christmas break, uh, my, my kids were home, and uh, we did a lot of fun stuff together, and they got to stay, and, and it was nice. 
And uh, one of the things that had occurred is my mom and I had had a conversation, and she said, you know, Dale, we need to get together and start thinking about the future and doing a little more estate planning and some things like that and, and care. For, you know, my brother's got a disability, and my mom is in great health now, but, you know, that could change in 5, 10, 15 years. So I said, yeah, you're right. And I talked to Gail about it ahead of time, and we were having a conversation in our house, and we're saying, you know, it's, up to, it's time to update our wills. We don't need a guardian for our children anymore. They're all over 18. Uh, we need to think about, you know, some different things like this. And we were talking about this, and we were talking about the future and maybe what kind of care we might be able to provide as needed and things like that. One of my daughters was in the other room, and she wasn't deliberately eavesdropping, and we weren't trying to hide what we were saying, but I talked to her afterwards. I said, did you hear what we were talking about? She goes, yeah, Dad, but how can you be so morbid to talk about that kind of stuff in the future? And it's like, well, daughter, because it's necessary, you know. You don't want to wait for disaster to strike you and then go, what am I supposed to do? So do plan ahead, you know, even and teach. Teach by example. First uh, Timothy 5 does provide some really interesting insight into the need for future planning. And this context is specifically in the context of widows, and I'll try to make this quick. It says that we are to honor widows who are widows indeed. It's qualified. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers day and night. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Wow. It's quite a checklist, isn't it? But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, and they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach. For some have already turned aside to follow Satan. If any woman is a, who is a believer has dependent widows, that's an interesting phrase there, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Again, those without family and without others to help them. It's very, very clear that we need to make provision for our family, even in this circumstance. I just found that very, very interesting. Well, we're starting to run short of time here, and I've got a couple more things for you. Another aspect of God's stewardship is he wants his stewards to serve in peace. And I, I selected this verse from John 16:33 because the Gospel of John is one of my favorite passages. And from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17, all those chapters, all that information takes place in one night. 
And that's the night before Jesus was betrayed. The Last Supper, the washing of the disciples' feet, um, Judas going out, all of those things, it's awesome. And they're such a, a tight group. They're a camaraderie. Jesus is trying to get through the disciples' thick skulls what is important. And right at the end of chapter 16, before Jesus goes into his high priestly prayer on behalf of them and all of those that would follow, it says, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. What an awesome statement, especially in the context of where he was at right at that moment. You know, last week Brennan shared that our missions team went through some trials and tribulations, and he spoke of the joy of serving from James chapter 1. Here's another passage that, that puts the same point to us. We are going to have trials. Some of us are going to lose jobs. Some of us are going to have to take pay cuts. Some of our retirement accounts might shrink up and we've got to go to work again. Uh, maybe we have to provide for a family member that isn't able to provide for themselves. Whatever those things are, and I'm just talking in the context of finances, we could also talk about time and relationships and others. We need to remember to do this with peace because God is the one who has overcome the world. He's the one who gives us that ability. Well, the final point I want to make then is that God wants his stewards to give him glory. And I'd like to end our time today with this passage from Ephesians 3. And I'll tell you the reason I selected this. About 17 or 18 years ago, John Duncan was preaching through the book of Ephesians. And when he came to chapter 3 and he started preaching on these two verses, I still remember this all these years later. He had the congregation do a response. And that's what I'd like to have us do today. I would like to invite you to stand. <clears throat> and I'm going to lead you through this passage in a repetitive manner. And as we go through this passage, I'd like you to maybe meditate. Look on the cross. Think about Sarah Swenson. Think about circumstances in your own life. And regardless of what you might be going through, let's think about God and who it is we serve and why we serve Him. So what I'll do is I'll lead you and then you can respond. And I might interject a couple comments here as the Spirit leads. So let's start out with the word now. Now to Him. Now to Him who is. Now to Him who is able. I want to take a moment and talk to you men out there. Sometimes we have the, uh, the ability to sort of compartmentalize our lives. We want to put God in a box. We say God is a part of our lives. I want to challenge you men. Make Him the center of your life. Think about how He is able today. Now to Him who is able to do. Now to Him who is able to do far more. To you women out there today, I want to share, you are the daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has dressed you, princesses, in royal robes, not with outward adornment, but with the adornment of an inner heart that is full of his grace. Show that light today. <clears throat> now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. 
with conviction say this now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for the attention this morning that we have given to Your Word. It's not I that deserve the glory, Lord, but You. I thank You for the people here in this congregation who are so faithful to wanting to follow You. Lord, stretch us. Help us to do even more to serve You and to obey You and to follow You. Not just in finances, but in every area of stewardship, Lord. May today the people be encouraged and may they give You the glory. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.